I'm Nathan Rutherford, and welcome to Myth Madness. This is the second episode on Perseus, and focuses on his homeward-bound adventures, like rescuing the Ethiopian princess Andromeda. Last episode, I began exploring Perseus's myths and used the very detailed version by Apollodorus as a framework for telling the stories. The episode included Perseus's most famous adventure, where he decapitates the Gorgon monster Medusa. Leading up to that, I discussed the feud between Perseus's grandfather Acrisios and his twin brother Proitos, and how Acrisios, after approaching an oracle, feared he would be killed by any grandson his daughter Danae gave birth to. So, trying to circumvent the prophecy, he imprisoned Danae, but didn't account for the god Zeus getting her pregnant anyway. He tried to drown his daughter and her newborn baby in the ocean, but they ended up on an island called Seraphos. Several years later, Perseus was grown up, and the cruel king of Seraphos, Polydictes, tried to get rid of Perseus so he could have Danae all to himself. That was the trigger for Perseus's quest to bring back Medusa's head. With a little help from the gods Hermes and Athena, and some divine treasures, winged sandals, a bag, and a cap of invisibility, Perseus was able to find the Gorgon and kill her. With his killing of Medusa complete, Perseus used the winged sandals to begin his flight back home with the Gorgon's severed head as a trophy. Even though it was safely hidden away in Perseus's bag, the head dripped blood down to the earth below. The Greek poet Apollonius, who wrote the Argonautica in the 3rd century BC, mentions how every drop of blood that fell to the ground turned into a mass of poisonous snakes, and that a single drop of blood from any of those snakes would kill any living thing in the world. The Roman poet Ovid also mentions this detail about drops of blood turning to poisonous snakes, but he also shares an odd twist in the story, a side quest in the Perseus myth. Perseus flew on, sometimes shifting west and sometimes east, and daylight gradually faded. Not wanting to fly at night, he landed in the far west, at the place where Atlas lived. Normally we know Atlas is one of the Titans, where instead of being imprisoned in Tartarus after Zeus defeated them, Atlas was made to hold up the sky. In this account, involving Perseus, there's no mention of Atlas's punishment. Instead, he is living a life of luxury. He rules over the lands at the end of the earth, has a thousand herds of cattle and sheep wandering over meadows, and he grows trees with golden apples in a walled garden. Perseus came to Atlas's home and asked him if he could rest there. Atlas refused and tried to drive him out by force. But saying nothing, Perseus turned his face away, pulled out Medusa's head, and showed it to Atlas, turning him into stone. The old titan was transformed into a mountain. His beard and hair became forests, his shoulders and hands the ridges, his head a high peak, and his bones into rocks. He became the Atlas Mountains, which are located in what is now Morocco. This strange story is a late addition to the Greek myths. The earliest record of it is by Ovid. It's referenced by two other known sources, but it's clear that they were using Ovid's story as a reference. I call it strange because it's also not particularly consistent with other aspects of Greek myth. Atlas here is presented like a king, and not like a titan being punished by holding up the sky. 
There are earlier stories that tell how Atlas was eventually released from his punishment, so maybe that could explain why he's living it up in this one. But this story also doesn't fit in with some of the myths involving the hero Heracles, who is supposed to be a descendant of Perseus. In this Ovid story, Atlas is turned to stone by Perseus, but the Heracles stories involve Heracles interacting with Atlas, something he can't do if he was already turned to stone. It just goes to show how the different Greek myths were constantly being reworked by the Greeks and Romans. Sometimes this was done in a cohesive way that makes sense, and sometimes it just was not. That particular episode of Perseus's journey is not well known. What's more well known, and is referenced by multiple Greek and Roman writers, was what happened when, continuing on, Perseus arrived in Ethiopia, or Ethiopia. First, let's talk a little bit of where Perseus was. Ethiopia translates to mean something like burnt face or red-brown. It is essentially a general term the Greeks had for more darker-skinned populations living outside Greece. The land of the Ethiopians was where these people lived. But was it a specific land? The first recorded use of the word is by Homer. His Ethiopians have a much more legendary feel than in other sources. The Odyssey has them in two locations, one in the far east and another in the far west, in the lands of the sunrise and the lands of the sunset. Their burnt-faceness, or darker features, are implied to be due to their proximity to the sun. Homer also tells us that the Ethiopians have a closer relationship to the gods than we do. Zeus and Poseidon both visit them in person at different times. Hesiod's Theogony is the first source that names a specific Ethiopian. The Ethiopian king Memnon was a son of the goddess Eos. As the dawn goddess, she gives the Ethiopians yet another connection to the sun. Later, the classical Greek historian Herodotus, writing around 450 BC, gives more details on Ethiopia, and he makes the place seem less mythical and more grounded in historical possibility. He claims to have actually visited its border, and said it was south of Egypt. In doing so, he largely identifies Ethiopia with what was then Nubia, which is roughly consistent with other sources from the later Hellenistic period. But the geography of Ethiopia is never completely nailed down. There are other suggestions that it was more in the Middle East, and even further east in the direction of India. How does all that come back to the Perseus story? I think the point here is that Perseus was having all these adventures in the strange lands beyond Greece. He had the winged sandals, and with them, he could travel all over the place. That's why we have tales of him going to Hyperborea in the north, to visit Atlas, to the very edge of the earth where the Gorgons are, traveling across Africa, and now, finally, in Ethiopia. Perseus found himself in an Ethiopia ruled by a man named Cepheus. The wife of Cepheus was Cassiopeia. Previously, Cassiopeia made an old mistake, challenging the immortals. She was very beautiful, but also incredibly vain. She claimed she was more beautiful than any of the Nereids, a group of 50 sea nymphs. These aren't your average nymphs, either. The ranks of the Nereids included some of the most important non-Olympian female goddesses in Greek mythology. Thetis, 
an important goddess who pops up occasionally, was a Nereid. Amphritrite, the wife of Poseidon, was a Nereid. So Cassiopeia, claiming she's more beautiful than any of the Nereids, is quite the boast. She's not just talking about your average water spirit. The Nereids, on their part, were severely offended and complained to Poseidon, the ruler of the sea. For Cassiopeia's hubris, Poseidon decided to punish the Ethiopians by flooding the land and sending a sea monster to devour the people. The king, Cepheus, went to an oracle to hear what he could do to appease the gods and save his kingdom. He was told that if his daughter, Andromeda, was fed to a sea monster, the gods would be satisfied. So Andromeda was chained to a rock and offered to the sea monster. She was left alone, naked and afraid, with nothing to do but watch the wine-dark waves for any sign of her coming doom. It was at this point that Perseus flew by. He saw Andromeda far below. Never mind the fact that she was chained and obviously vulnerable, Perseus noticed that she was also very beautiful, and he fell in love. Hyginus simply says that Perseus killed the sea monster and rescued Andromeda, freeing her from danger. Apollodorus implies there were a series of transactions here, that he promised to rescue her in exchange for marriage, and that oaths were sworn. I'd like to think Apollodorus meant this was between Perseus and Andromeda, because the idea of him leaving her there while he negotiated a marriage with her father is pretty ridiculous. What if he came back, contract in hand, and she'd already been eaten? Of course, even if it was between Perseus and Andromeda only, it's not really a fair discussion, is it? Andromeda is chained and waiting for certain death. What's the girl going to do? Her options are predatory marriage agreement or painful death. Really only has one choice. Ovid gives the most imaginative account of Perseus slaying the sea monster. He says that as Perseus and Andromeda spoke, the mighty ocean roared. Over the waves, a monster quickly approached, its head held high. Andromeda shrieked. No aid came from her father or from her mother. They only cried and clinged to her fettered body. As the monster broke the surface, Perseus rose up into the sky, and then, when the sea monster exposed its back to the air, Perseus swept down and thrust his sword down to the hilt in the creature's body. The monster reared high into the air and plunged into the water, trying to find whatever had harmed it. Perseus used the wing sandals to avoid its jaws and repeatedly stabbed it in the back or along the ribs, wherever and whenever he could. Eventually, resting on a rock, he cut through the sea monster's belly, spilling its guts and killing it. In victory, he made three altars, one to honor Athena, one to honor Hermes, and another to honor Zeus. On these altars, he sacrificed a cow to Athena, a calf to Hermes, and a bull to Zeus. Now, these adventures that Perseus goes on after killing the Gorgons, they come to us through a couple late Greek and Roman sources. Apollodorus from the 2nd century AD, Hyginus from the same century, and Ovid from about 100 or 200 years earlier are the best examples. The earlier literary works, the ones from Archaic and Classical Greece, are focused more on Perseus's slaying of Medusa. However, the classical Greek playwrights, Euripides and Sophocles, both wrote plays entitled Andromeda, 
which would have had their versions of the Perseus Andromeda tale. Unfortunately, the plays are lost to history, so we don't have the versions. But we do have one surviving note by a poet named Lycophron from the 3rd century BC, which does contain something interesting. He describes something called the Towers of Cepheus, and the two rocks on which the sea monster leapt in quest of food. But the sea monster didn't carry off Andromeda. Instead, it took Perseus away, possibly having swallowed him whole. Lycophron says that Perseus destroyed the beast's liver and dismembered the monster, possibly from the inside out. In the note, Lycophron is very poetic, so I've paraphrased for a bit of clarity. But something I want to point out was his use of the term Towers of Cepheus, and two rocks. What does he mean by this? I think what he might mean may be answered by looking at earlier Greek art. While we don't have any surviving archaic and classical Greek literature telling us about Perseus's adventures in Ethiopia, there are surviving vases from the 5th century BC that show Andromeda tied up, ready to face her doom, and Perseus nearby waiting to rescue her. The thing is, Ovid and the later writers describe Andromeda basically bound in chains into a rock. But in these art examples, she is not bound to a rock. Instead, she often has each arm tied to a large, upright pole. I think it's likely that Lycophron's Towers of Cepheus is referring to the same setup, with Andromeda tied to poles or stone columns. Moving on, after the sea monster is killed, Andromeda and Perseus were married. But of course, the situation was more complicated. Andromeda was actually already betrothed to her uncle, sometimes named Phineas and sometimes Agenor. This Phineas Agenor was not happy that she had now been married to Perseus. Although one wonders why he didn't try and save her from the sea monster himself if he was so keen to marry her. Phineas got his friends together and tried to murder Perseus. Ovid describes a scene where during the wedding feast of Perseus and Andromeda, an angry mob of Phineas and his friends ran into the hall. Phineas yelled, I come the avenger of my ravished bride, and then threw a spear at Perseus. He missed. The feast then dissolved into chaos, and numerous people drew swords and began fighting. Several heroic adventurers from foreign lands, an Indian, an Assyrian, and others, fought Perseus in single combat, but were each killed by him. He had a little help from the goddess Athena, who intervened to protect the hero. She stood in the hall invisible, but used her shield to block attacks and gave Perseus added courage to fight against these new enemies. Some of the feasting heroes also sided with Perseus, and Phineas fought in some duels of his own, killing several, including two twin heroes named Broteus and Amon. The whole thing is a graphic scene. Perseus slashes his opponents across the chest with his sword, and various people slip on all the blood. An old man curses all the fighters before getting his own head chopped off. Another man, trying to fight, gets his hand pinned to a doorpost by a spear, and then dies, still attached to the doorpost, which keeps his body from falling to the ground. The entire time, Andromeda, her father, and her mother, Cassiopeia, fill the halls with cries to stop the fighting, but the clash of arms and the groans of fallen heroes drown their cries. Eventually, Perseus went nuclear, 
he pulled the Medusa head out of the bag and turned Phineas and his followers to stone. In some versions, Andromeda's father was also one of the men who attacked Perseus, and he was turned to stone too. Certainly a wedding to remember. After all the mayhem was over, the victorious Perseus decided to leave Ethiopia and go back to his native land together with his new bride. You could say that after all the commotion, there wasn't much left for them in Ethiopia, or nobody wanted them around. While there aren't any surviving classical Greek sources for the Andromeda story, we do have some information on Perseus's return to Greece. The poet Pindar only says that Perseus was successful, and that he brought back the Gorgon's head as a wedding gift for Polydictes. The playwright Aeschylus wrote three plays about Perseus's adventures, and the third told what happened when he came back to Seraphos. For the details, we have to turn once again to my favorite later source, Apollodorus. When Perseus, along with Andromeda, finally came home, things were quite bad in Seraphos. Perseus's mother Danae and Dictes had fled to a temple to escape from the island's ruler, Polydictes. Perseus went to Polydictes's palace and found him there having a feast with all his scoundrel friends. When Polydictes saw that Perseus was so courageous, he became scared. Perseus, once again, like in Ethiopia, pulled out Medusa's head and turned them all to stone. Afterwards, Perseus made Dictes the new king of Seraphos. He also gave the winged sandals, Cabyses' bag, and the cap of invisibility back to Hermes. They were really only on loan after all, and the Gorgon's head was given to Athena. Apollodorus has Hermes return the treasures to the nymphs, although he probably put the winged sandals back on his own feet. And Athena hung the Gorgon's head around her neck, in the center of her aegis, an article of clothing she wears around her shoulders. After making Dictys king, Perseus and Andromeda left Seraphos and headed to the Greek mainland. As it happened, a king named Tautamindes was holding an athletic competition. Perseus entered the competition as an athlete and took part in the discus throwing. He threw the discus further than anyone and it went wide and landed in the audience. The discus hit someone in the head, killing them. It turned out that the dead man was none other than Acrisios, the father of Danae and the grandfather of Perseus. So after all the trouble Acrisius went to jail his daughter in the bronze chamber, it turned out his grandson did kill him after all, in an unexpected accident. But Perseus himself was an honorable man. He had Acrisius buried nearby, but he was too ashamed of unknowingly killing his grandfather to go to the city of Argos and claim the kingship that now should have passed to him. Perseus instead approached a man named Megapenthes, king of Tyrans, who was the son of Poitos, that same brother of Acrisios who warred with him at the beginning of the story. Perseus and the new king came to an agreement. Perseus and Megapenthes decided to swap places. Megapenthes became king of Argos, and Perseus became king of Tyrans. I think we can safely say that Megapenthes thought he was getting the better city here, because why else would he trade it away if he already had it? Perseus also gained control of another town, called Mycenae. He built a wall around it, and that little town would go on to make a very big name for itself later in Greek mythology. 
There are a couple other versions that are inconsistent with what Apollodorus tells us. Hagenus says a couple conflicting things. The Polydictes tried to trap Perseus, so the hero killed him with Medusa's head. So far, so good. But Hagenus also notes that Perseus's grandfather, Acrisios, found out Perseus and Danae were staying at the palace of Polydictes, and came to collect them, I assume to imprison them all over again, and that it was Polydictes, of all people, who stood up for them, and convinced Acrisios to spare them. Hagenus also says that the athletic competition was not held on the Greek mainland, but was held to honor Polydictes after he died on Seraphos. Acrisius was killed with the discus in the same way as Apollodorus's version. The Greek Pausanias's version follows Apollodorus's. He says the athletic competition was also on the mainland, and that Perseus and Megapenthes also swapped kingdoms. But Ovid's is even more weirder than Hagenus's. He says Perseus actually joined his grandfather, Acrisios, in his war against Proitos. Euripides wrote a play entitled Acrisios, which probably told the story of the old king's death. The play is, as you might expect by now, lost to history. But I wish this was around. It would be nice to know where Euripides landed on the circumstances of Acrisios' death, and how Perseus acquired his kingdom. So, at this point, we have Perseus ruling over a kingdom and founding the city of Mycenae. In this way, Perseus is one of those legendary founder figures that make up most of the first few generations of Greek heroes. Of course, the other side of being a founder figure is having a family, that then gives rise to various Greek hero descendants. Perseus and Andromeda became the parents of a number of sons and daughters. While they were in Ethiopia, they had their first son, a boy named Perses. The Greeks believed this son was left behind in Ethiopia, and was the ancestor of the kings of ancient Persia. In the Pelops episode, I talked about how Pelops eventually fought wars against Perseus for control of southern Greece, but they must have eventually made peace. After that, no less than four of Perseus's sons married into the family of the Greek hero Pelops. Perseus's son Alcaeus married Pelops's daughter Astadamia. Their son was a man named Amphitryon, who we'll hear about again in a future episode. Perseus's son Stenelos and Pelops's daughter Nicope had two daughters, named Alcyone and, funny enough, Medusa. They also had a son named Eurysius, who is going to play an important role in the future too. Perseus's son Electrion and Eurydice, yet another daughter of Pelops, became the parents of the woman Alcmene, who will become a lover of Zeus. Finally, Perseus's son Mestor and Pelops's daughter Lycodike were parents of Hippothoe. According to Apollodorus, she was later abducted by Poseidon, became his lover, and their son founded a city. And then there is Perseus's daughter Gorgophone. She had three sons, Apharius, Leucippus, and Tyndarius. The sources disagree on her husband. Apollodorus names one, Pausanias names two. Through the fathers, the sons, the most important being Tyndarius, inherited the kingdoms of Mycenae and Sparta. You can find family trees showing all these relationships on the podcast website, www.mythmadness.com. 
In the end, there is not much to be said about the death of Perseus. The only person who records anything is Hyginus. He says Perseus was eventually killed by Megapenthes, the king he swapped cities with. Hyginus's reason is that Perseus killed his father, which is not very consistent with the other versions either. But through all his kids and their marriages, Perseus was a legendary ancestor for the royal families in Argos, Mycenae, Elis, Sparta, and Mycenae. So that's basically all of southern Greece. His most famous descendant was the mythical hero Heracles. With all of this, it shouldn't come as a surprise that Perseus developed quite the hero cult in ancient Greece. He was even celebrated outside the lands of his claimed ancestors, in Athens. And that's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with a friend.